are here for the very first time. Very first time. Awesome to have you guys. Awesome. I'm Dwayne Dare, the lead pastor here. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, you will learn some things about this church. Uh, we, we take ourselves not very seriously at all, uh, but we take God very seriously. So if you're here, we kind of think that you're here maybe to hear what God has to say. So we're going to preach the word straight up, but we're going to try to have some fun doing it. So uh, hopefully you guys get a chuckle or two. Make sure you get some snacks. If you need to go somewhere, use the restroom, whatever. Don't, you're not going to be disturbing anybody. Make it happen, right? All right. We are in uh, a message series called By Anxiety. We started this during the holiday season, figuring, hey, okay, this is a time where everybody's kind of stressed out, kind of feeling, you know, maybe you guys all have your Christmas shopping done, all wrapped under the tree. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's some stress. Maybe there's some anxiety out there. Are you going to pay for it? Are you going to wrap it? Are you going to see family? What are you going to do when you get to see family? Are they going to be irritating to you like they normally are? I mean, all that kind of stuff happens this time of year. We're in the fifth message of this series. So if you want to catch up with what we've done in the last four weeks, you can get on to our podcast. You can get on to our website at www.thesurge.cc. Click on the media page. The messages will be there. But uh, we are trusting that as we go through this series, that God's going to help us deal with the number one mental health issue in America today. And that's anxiety or worry or fear. We're going to spend this week and next week in one passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 4. So if you've got your apps or your Bibles or whatever, you can turn to those and uh, we'll get there in just a second. Let me just pray for us and we'll see what God might have for us today. God, we thank you for this uh, time here in this theater. We thank you for those who have come, for the hearts that you've led here. We know it's no accident that they're here. Um, you have drawn them. It wasn't the card. Something you did even before the card arrived drew them to us. So... Um, Help us to make them feel whole and welcome. Help me as I preach your word, Lord, to be clear, uh, to make sense of stuff and uh, teach us what we need to know. Help us to be yours. Help us to be changed maybe a little bit from our time with you this morning. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray all this. Amen. Okay, here we go. Philippians chapter 4. Got it on the screen just in case you don't have it memorized. And it's always a check to make sure that... Oh, by the way, as you say... If you're here for the very first time, I realize I have this one shot at making a good first impression. But my wife, the Everly Encourager, always reminds me that no matter how, many, how, many good, how well the sermon is or how bad it is, I'm only going to get one best sermon I'll ever do. Only one sermon ever that's going to be the best. So, you know, this may not be the best, but, it, you know, it's going to be what God has for us today. So I hope that you will leave here encouraged. Philippians chapter 4. Here's what we read. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul writes, practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. 
Well, we've, we've all, have we not had bosses that we would just love to get away from, right? But the passage that we just read contains some words that just kind of pop out at us and describe the kind of God that followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to know. Think about it this way. You, you apply for a job, and you ask somebody who works there about the boss and, and the environment and the culture. And the person, in describing what life is like in that workplace, uses words like giddy and happy and, you know, fulfilling, or put another way, like rejoice or thanksgiving. And you hear that this boss really does have an open-door policy and really loves to hear anything from you about, you know, your ideas or things that you need to do your job better. This boss actually cares about what's going on with you as a person and just makes everything work smoothly. I mean, you know where you stand with this boss. You don't have to fret about things there. There's no flying off the handle. You won't have to be walking on eggshells around this person. You hear, I've never been happier in a job ever. I'm, I'm, I'm so at peace here. I can't imagine working anywhere else for anyone else. Well, this is the kind of sentiment that you and I should have, Paul says, as we serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The problem is that there are some false concepts about this God in the, in the world. Some people view God as someone who is never really going to be happy, never really going to be happy until you are miserable, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about God that way, but if you do, you, you might think that God measures your, your, your uh, commitment to him by how much misery and hardship and unhappiness you'll endure. But the scriptures kind of describe God as a God of love for his children. And in this passage, we, said, we sort of see that God wants fullness of life for us, and fullness of joy, and fullness of peace, and fullness of rest for his people. I mean, if you know him today, if you're a child of the king through faith in Christ, if you've really gotten to know him in a personal way, then you know that his will for you is not to have your life filled with you know, joyless anxiety or unending fear or worry. So if you came in here this morning and you feel kind of bound up with a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, maybe just a troubled heart, you know, you should, we should know that God wants us to be free from that. He really does. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk through this passage we just read and show you how Paul is trying to help us unravel some of the tension and the anxiety from our lives. And what he's going to do, of course, before he's done, is going to introduce us to Christ because no surprise there. Christ is the one who said, I, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. So first thing I want to chat about is just a little wacky, right? Paul says, if you want to be free from anxiety, stop worrying. <laughs> Doesn't this sound like circular reasoning? Right? It's like whenever you tell your parents, man, my, mom, it, it really hurts when I, when I do this with my shoulder. My mom used to always say, well, don't do that with your shoulder. Uh, that's what it sounds like Paul is saying here. Hey, why are you, are you anxious? Let me help you with that. Don't be anxious. <laughs> and we kind of want to bop him in the head, don't we? Right? But let's keep on digging. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Notice something. This is not advice. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. The grammar in the Greek actually says this, stop being anxious. You're in a state of anxiety right now. You're constantly worrying right now. Stop, he says. 
And we think, Paul, are you serious? Well, he is. Stop yourself in your tracks. Take a step back. Stop that train of thought. Stop that trajectory, he would say. Stop entertaining all these fears and all these, you know, know, hurts or whatever, uh, all these doubts. Don't be anxious about what? Anything, he says. Anything. That's, That's pretty generic. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? So bottom line here is God's saying, I I don't really give you permission as my child to worry about anything. In fact, he's prohibiting it. And he expects us to obey that, not because he's a meanie, but, but for our own good. Right? Now, because it is a command, how do we process commands? We process commands through our minds and our wills. In other words, you and I have a choice to make confronted with this command. And it's a, it's a choice that God says not only do we get to make, but that we actually can make. You and I can make this choice. And given this command, you and I will either continue in a state of anxiety or choose not to continue in a state of anxiety. So that's the first thing. I got to realize that I get a choice in this whole mess and that I can make a choice when it comes to anxiety. You can actually choose not to be anxious in this moment. But, but here's the second thing, because then the question is, well, how do we, how do, we do this? Because, because no matter what, if we just choose to do something, all the circumstances out there, all the things we're worried about, all the what-if scenarios we're playing around in our minds, they haven't gone anywhere. They're still there, right? So we got to do something with that. We don't just blink, declare we're not going to worry anymore, and all of a sudden the worries are gone. They're still there. Something has to be done with those things that's causing the anxiety, makes us frightened or fearful. So here's the second thing Paul says. You and I have got to pray. Verse 6 tells us, don't be anxious about anything, but, contrast, instead of being anxious about everything, in contrast to that, A possible alternative to that is in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, in everything, in every situation you find yourself in, every circumstance you find yourself in, every difficulty that you face, every trial, every what-if scenario that pops up in your brain, what are you supposed to do with those sources of and scenarios about something that's making you anxious? Well, First first of all, you say, I'm going to try to decide not to be anxious, but I'm going to do something in addition. I'm going to do something besides that. I'm going to make them known to God. I'm going to entrust them to God. Because God's not weak nor timid, right? God says, stop fixating on those things, just that. Stop fixating just on those things. Stop worrying about them instead. I want you to pray. I want you to pray about it. They just give me those worries. Give me those anxieties. Give me those fears offload them onto me. Here's how, here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It says humble yourself. That is, that's humility, not humidity, okay? In other words, part of our anxiety is that we trust ourselves. We're trusting in our own wisdom. We're worrying about something. We're figuring out how are we going to figure this out. We're trusting in our own power. We're trusting in our own ability, our own cleverness, right, in figuring out 
reasoning it through, making it work. And because I am trusting in me, I have anxiety. Because now this whole thing is resting on me. I have to do this. I've got to make this happen. I've got to accomplish this. And the problem is we can't always make that happen. Lots of stuff, if you've not discovered this, is beyond you. Maybe you think you control the stock market, but guess what? <laughs> Forces of work that are insane to me control that. You don't control everything. We can't always do it, right? Instead, Paul says, Peter says, humble yourselves before God. Recognize that you are a little bit weak. You don't have all power. You can't make everything happen. But, good, good news, God happens to be mighty. Verse 7 tells us how we are to actually do this. Should we decide to stop worrying and turn our attention to prayer, we do it by casting all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. The word cast is kind of interesting. It's the same word that's used uh, during that triumphal march of Jesus into Jerusalem. Remember, they got a donkey. Sometimes some versions call it a colt. And he's going to ride this uh, colt, this donkey, into Jerusalem. And it says that the disciples, they throw or they cast their cloaks onto the colt or the donkey, and Jesus sits on them. God says, here's the deal. You hurl your concerns. You cast your concerns my way. Let me sit on those for you for a while. Unload them my way. Why? Because I really do care about you. Here's our problem. Some of us don't really believe that. Even as Christ followers, we don't really buy it. We don't believe it because we kind of know us, right? We know we're not all that lovable. And the God who sees everything and knows everything kind of knows the stuff we keep hidden. But he loves us anyway. That's what he says. It's true. God doesn't just tolerate you as his children. He deeply cares for you as his children. That word care is another interesting word. It's a mental word. It means that he's thinking about you. He's considering you. You are on his heart. You're on his mind because, and we're all amazed by this, you matter to him. God says, I, I think about you all the time. Jackie and I were at the doctor's office earlier this week and they had a TV there. And of course, now if you go into a doctor's offices, they don't have the soap operas anymore. They usually play HGTV or the cooking channel. So they had the cooking channel, and there she was, the pioneer woman cooking stuff. And she's, she's making meatballs. And so she's meatballs. And, and, and she looks up and she says, I, I just love meatballs. I just, I just love meatballs. And she, she goes, I think about meatballs all the time. And Jackie and I looked at each other and we go, no, nope. <laughs> Nobody, nobody thinks about meatballs all the time. But God says, I think about you all the time. You are on my mind. You're on my heart continually. And it grieves me to see you so wound up and weighed down with these anxieties and fears and, and, and terrors, right? Would, would you just be willing to kind of offload them onto me? Will you just cast them in my direction? Would you humble yourself? Stop thinking you can fix everything. Stop worrying and everything. Just throw them my way. Pray, because I am a mighty, great, and caring God. Right? Now, notice the terms here used to describe prayer. Prayer is basically like petitions. You, you are directing requests 
to a higher authority who's got more power and authority than you have. That's, that's kind of prayer, petitions. He also mentions supplications. That's kind of urgent pleading, right? You're, constant, you're urgently pleading with God for this help for these anxieties or worries or fears that you have. He mentions requests. This is just nothing more than just being specific. Not, you're being specific about what your concerns are. You're not just praying some general prayer, blah, 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 blah. You know, now lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord of my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord of my soul to keep. That doesn't cover it. See, plus, plus, aside. Is that not a terrifying prayer to teach a four-year-old? Well, son, I may not see you tomorrow. You may, you, may, you may die tonight. And if you die tonight, someone's going to come in here and suck the life, right? Okay, that, I never taught my kids that prayer. So, but, but for you, as we pray, right? Praying specific requests, the things that are on your heart, the things that are on your mind, not some general thing, not some mantra that you learn, specific things that are on your heart about your, that's, that's loading your heart down. You unload those things to God pleading with him and specifically asking him to deal with those, right? Maybe you're even unloading burdens that you have for other people, right? You're, you stop worrying about those people. You are giving those things to God. Now, notice what it says in verse 7 about, about how to pray. This, this, I, this is key. I can't tell you how key this is. It says we do it with thanksgiving. Okay, so you're worried about everything. You're frantic about stuff. You're, you're, you're in a panic. Your heart's racing all over the place, but it says we are to pray with Thanksgiving, that Thanksgiving ought to mark the way we're praying as we are dealing with tough, tough, tough stuff, hard things, some bad things that's happened, some difficult circumstances. You're dealing with anxiety, dealing with fear. You're weighed down. You go to the Lord in prayer, but you go to the Lord in prayer in a spirit of Thanksgiving, not just petitions, not just requests, not just supplications, but with Thanksgiving. And, and here's why this is so important, Be, because Thanksgiving is a death knell to anxiety. It, it's our way of reminding ourselves that God, in the past, has been good. That God is, even in the, in the midst of our difficulties right now, He is still good. And God is God. He's going to be good in the future. He's good. So I can give thanks for all the things that God has done. I can give thanks for all the things that God is doing, even the things that God's going to teach me through the hard thing I'm going through and have worries about. And I can have confidence that he's not done yet. He's still going to be showing up and doing good in the future. And when you exercise thanksgiving, it ensures that you won't spend your time in prayer about the things that are worrying you, working up even more anxiety because of the way you're praying, right? So see, the reasons that some people feel like prayer never helps them with their anxieties and their fear and their worry is because when they're praying, all they are doing is simply rehearsing all the things that are making them worry. With me, you go to the Lord in prayer, and all you're doing is praying about the things that you are stressed about, and you're anxious about, and you're fearful about, all right? A, a good example of this shows up in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, you got Screwtape, the seasoned demon, and he's got an understudy named Wormwood, and Wormwood's job is to keep this guy, this human, his client, from becoming a Christian. Well, he fails at that, much to the chagrin of, of both Wormwood and Screwtape. But he, Screwtape says, okay, now that you've failed at that mission, here's what you've got to do. You've got to make this person as miserable as a Christian as, as he can be. So tempt him, see if you can lead him astray, right? And at one point, Wormwood calls Screwtape and says, uh, let's talk about this guy's prayer life. 
And Screwtape says, okay, here's what you want to do. You know, if he's going to pray for his wife, you know, make sure that he's praying about all the things about his wife that irritate him to death. All the things that annoy him about his wife, right? All the things that drive him crazy about his wife, right? If you can get him to do that, then as he prays for his wife, he will actually grow more angry and more frustrated and more bitter about all of her idiosyncrasies and all of her quirks. See, that's why when you're actually praying for somebody and in praying you find yourself actually getting up even more angry, more frustrated, more irritated with them. Yeah, anybody experienced that? I, I have. Prayed wrong, right? Just afraid to admit it sometimes, right? It's the same with our anxieties. If we're not careful, we can focus so much on our anxieties that all we're doing is rehearsing everything rehearsing all the fears, instead of rehearsing just how good God is, even in the midst of the difficult things. You rehearse the, his goodness, rehearse his kindness, rehearse how benevolent God is, rehearse how generous God is, rehearse how powerful God is. If you're going to lay this burden on him, you've got to believe that he is powerful enough to deal with it, right? So thank him for that in advance even. You know, make sure your prayers are full of this thanksgiving, right? Don't worry about anything, but fly to God in prayer about everything. And then we get this great promise if we do this. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you'll, I mean, mean, what do you want if you're anxious and fearful and worrying? Wouldn't a little little peace be nice? (laughs) He says, God will give you that. Now listen, it does not say that God's going to immediately, when you get up from your knees, change all of your circumstances. He's not going to change all of the environment around you. Those circumstances that had you worried might still be there. It doesn't say that whatever scenario is causing you stress is going to change. It just says that in the midst of all that, God's going to give you his supernatural peace. As you and I unload our burdens onto God, trusting him to, to deal with them, God's going to offload his peace onto us. You just offload your concerns on him, and he says, I'm going to back my truck up, and I'm going to offload my peace to you to replace the concerns you have and the fears. It says this peace is going to guard your hearts and mind, your inner life, your thoughts, your feelings, your reasoning, sort of the entirety of all the stuff that goes on in here and in your brain. So it's the peace of God's going to enter, and it's going to guard your hearts and mind. This word guard is a military term. It means to maintain a watch or have a sentry or a guard. The word is used in the scripture to describe a garrison of soldiers who are guarding a city gate. Paul is writing this letter from Rome to a church at Philippi. At that point in time, Philippi was a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, it was guarded by a Roman garrison. And Paul's picture of this peace of God is going to be like, okay, I'm going to to send armed guards and bring calmness to your inner life in the midst of all your difficulties. And I'm going to make sure that nothing gets in there and disturbs it. One commentator said like this, God is going to cause us to sit down in our hearts. Your heart's racing. It's panic-stricken. It's running all over the place. God says, I'm going to cause your heart to just take a deep breath. And sit down. Peace of God sets up shop as a guard to prevent anything zipping in there that shouldn't be there, right? You've seen on TV shows, I'm sure, these nightclubs in New York City, they've got some big burly guy, maybe two of them stationed at the door of these nightclubs, right? Bouncers. They're usually beasts of men, right? 
You know? And if anybody suddenly wanted to go into that nightclub, they ain't getting past those bouncers without permission. The peace of God is like a bouncer. It's ready to cast anything out that shouldn't be there and to prevent anything that should not be there from getting in that tries to gain entrance. Yep. Don't know about you, but there's some things that pop up in my heart that need bouncing. Need bouncing. Some thoughts I have. And God says, my peace is going to be like a bouncer. It's going to guard you. It's going to guard you. It's going to take care of that. And this casting out stuff is supernatural stuff. You, you and I cannot work this up ourselves. You're not going to just repeat some mantra over and over again, thinking the peace of God is just going to show up magically. It says, as you draw near to God, he draws near to you. And as he does, he supernaturally brings his peace that, frankly, you and I can't even explain. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that. Somebody's gone through something horrific. Somebody's had an incredible loss. And you talk to them, and there's just this peace about them that you don't even understand. How can you be that way knowing your circumstances? Well, so be anxious, but pray. Don't forget another aspect of this peace of God. It says it guards our hearts and minds in, in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that, see? Peace of God is only available to those who are in a relationship with Christ Jesus. I mean, you might see some counterfeits of it show up on TV. Watch Oprah. All kinds of counterfeit peace, counterfeit advice. But there is a peace that God wants us to have that is found only in a relationship with Christ. And here's why. Scriptures are really clear. That our sin has robbed us of peace with God. In fact, Scriptures say that we are, as we emerge from the birth canal, <laughs> we are in full full-fledged rebellion against God. We arrive on the planet alienated from him and at odds with him. And we are even called enemies of God. And guess what? There's not a bloody thing we can do about it. But there was something that God could do about it to change the situation. In his mercy, in his grace, he sent his son Christ to bear the punishment that you and I were due, the death penalty, right? He took the death penalty for us to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. All reconciliation is, is to bring peace between two warring factions. In this case, the warring factions were you and me and God. And as our faith in Christ is expressed, peace between us and God breaks out. And once we have that, it is then possible to experience the peace of God. See, peace with God shows up first then the peace of God gets unloaded. But you're not going to experience the peace of God until you have peace with God. And it is a peace that is beyond comprehension. It is supernatural. You can, you can pursue a counterfeit peace, you know, count to 10, take a deep breath, say a few mantras that will calm you down in a moment maybe, but you are not going to experience the supernatural peace of God that per permeates your life apart from being at peace with God. In fact, I think some of the reasons, um, one of the reasons so many people have experienced such tremendous anxiety in this world is that they, 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 they feel completely alone in this cosmos of ours. They look around at this massive universe and they know that there's got to be a designer. It's just too organized. There's got to be something moving this thing along. There's got to be someone who made all this stuff. Someone, I'm probably, ultimately, 
supposed to submit to. <laughs> but I don't know who that is. You and I know, for Christ followers, that it's God. But there's an unsettledness without that. There's always this uncertainty and fear. We talked about this when we talked about the fear of aging and death in an earlier message. That we all have this underlying fear of death because we don't have a relationship with God sometimes. The greatest peace you'll ever need is not financial peace, not, not peaceful relationship with some other human being, but a peace with God. And then you can be at peace with everything else. Let me give you the third thing that this passage unravels for us. It's going to sound a little insensitive, so I'll try to deal with that. It says this, rejoice. We just saw the uh, British folks going crazy, right, when they beat Columbia in the soccer match, right? Paul says, yeah, you're miserable? Oh, here's the deal. Just rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, it's like somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not very happy right now. And you say, oh, I know how to fix that. Be happy. I mean, you want to punch him in the throat. I mean, that's what you want to do. That's, that's not helpful, right? All right? And Paul says, look, I want you to rejoice. I want you to always rejoice. He throws it in there. He says it twice, and it says always. When are we supposed to rejoice? Always. In the highs of life. Rejoice. Easy. In the lows of life. Not so easy. Always be rejoicing. And guess what? It's another command. And that makes it just another choice we get to make. We can decide to replace our fear and worry by rejoicing. Or, or, or we can decide not to. Paul says, look, you can do either one. It's your choice. But, you know, maybe you ought to choose door number one. Always rejoice. Now, sometimes for us, rejoicing is an involuntary outburst, like when your team scores a winning goal. Your team wins the Stanley Cup, right? right? Or something even more amazing. Your, your kid cleans his room. I mean, something you totally did not expect ever could happen. And you just explode with this involuntary outburst of happiness. But sometimes rejoicing is this voluntary, willful choice to rejoice, even when things are going horribly wrong. It says, look, we, we have the capacity as Christians to actually choose to rejoice. But, but notice that Paul does not say, hey, you know, you're rejoicing about your circumstances. Be happy about your circumstances. He's not saying that. He says our focus is on rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, rejoicing comes from not how good or bad your circumstances are, but from knowing who Jesus is, knowing all that he has won for us and secured for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And Paul says, look, this joy can actually be stronger than the sorrow that you're feeling over the circumstances and the stuff you're facing. Let's be honest. You ever go to someone with a real worry, or a real pain, a real concern, and you're sharing your heart with them, and they go, well, just rejoice in the Lord, right? Not a good thing to say, right? Here, I, I'll give you permission. If your house burns down, and I come to you and say, just rejoice in the Lord, you have permission to shoot me. Just put me out of my misery, because that is so insensitive. It's so trite. It's so Christianese. It's foolish, right? This, this is not something that someone else is supposed to tell us. This is God dealing with each of us individually. This is God telling us that we should rejoice despite challenging hard circumstances. So I've been pondering this, and I think maybe, as Christ followers, we, haven't devoted, we have not devoted quite enough time and our attention to thinking and feeling about Jesus. And I'll include myself in this right? 
Sometimes Jesus, because we get so busy, can kind of be pushed to the margins. He's, it's okay to be a Sunday thing. I mean, you're all here. We're focused on Christ. But you know what? What about Monday? What about Tuesday? What about the circumstances that show up on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? He can be relegated to a little compartment as opposed to being the truest thing about us in all of our lives every single day. And if we don't see Christ as the truest thing about us all the time, guess what? The circumstances that you face, the hard stuff you face, the challenges you face, it's going to end up controlling your mind and emotions. So Paul says to this church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I can just imagine someone coming back to Paul saying, Paul, how can you be so insensitive as to say that to me? Don't you see what I'm facing? Don't you see what I'm fearing? It's real, you know. Our lives are at risk. Don't you know what I'm feeling? How could you say that to me? And Paul says, how could I not say that to you, Christ follower? Don't you see Jesus? Don't you see all that he's won for you? And listen, here's what, here's what blows us away. Paul is telling these people to do this as he sits in Rome on death row, awaiting his execution for his faith in Jesus Christ. So what are you saying to us? What he's saying to the church of Philippi is, guys, just, just do what I'm doing right now, facing death. Rejoice in the Lord. All of a sudden, it doesn't sound quite so trite, does it? Doesn't sound quite so flippant, does it? All of a sudden, it just got real. All of a sudden, we see a guy who's going to lose a whole lot more than a job, a whole lot more than a little bit of health, a whole lot more than a house. He's going to lose his entire life. And he is rejoicing in the Lord. Peace of God can be had even then. So we have to learn to choose to rejoice. No matter what we have lost, we have not lost Jesus. We've not lost what is for us most valuable to us. And he's not lost control. And he's going to bring about all the good purposes he have, has for us and for the world. So rejoice in the Lord always. This means we have to stop looking just at our circumstances. Have to stop looking just at our own health. Have to stop looking just at our own plans that haven't materialized. Have to stop looking just at our own pain. Have to stop looking just at our own losses. Have to stop looking at just our own fears. We have to stop looking at our problems and, and saying, how can I possibly rejoice? We have to look at Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. And saying, how can I not rejoice? So if this is you, and you are in him, this is to be the soundtrack of your life. So, clarification. This does not mean that you and I are not going to experience hard times in life. By the way, this slide is for musicians and worship teams everywhere, right? It doesn't mean that they're not tears. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't feel sorrow. It doesn't mean we don't fear anger or hurt or pain. Right? We're not in denial about those things. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Hey, we're afflicted. We are. We are afflicted. You're going to have afflictions. Uh, 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 uh. 
But in Christ, we are not crushed. There are things pressing down on you that will press down on you. They're coming for you. But there's something in us, in Christ, that prevents us from being crushed by them. Paul says we are perplexed. Ever been perplexed? I don't know why this happened. I don't know why this is going on. I don't know what's, I don't know what, why is this happening to me? Yeah, you're perplexed. But there's something in us that prevents us from being in despair because we know Christ. Paul says, hey, we can be struck down. That means dead, killed. And Paul says, yeah, but we're not annihilated. It's not the end of us. Paul even says this in the next chapter. He says, hey, we're, we're sorrowful. Things are happening that are, that are grieving us. But in spite of that, we can rejoice. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, look, you and I can be afflicted. We can be perplexed. We can be struck down. We can be sorrowful. But none of those things are the main plot line of our lives. The biggest story in our lives is this. Jesus is alive. He's Lord of everything. He rules over everything. He loves me, and I'm his. So I can rejoice even in the sorrow, even in the pain. He doesn't say we're not sorrowful, but we do recognize that in Christ, joy is coming. And we're not pretending. It's not fake it till you make it stuff. That's not what this is. We're not to be pretenders. We're realists. We know as Christians how the world actually works. And we know who rules it. So as I was preparing this message, here's what kind of popped me in the, in the face this week. And this is just for me, so I'm just going to share what I learned. It may not be for you. Here's what I learned. If I'm not rejoicing in all things, that's what I'm pretending. If I'm not rejoicing in all things, that's what I'm pretending. I'm pretending that, you know, like, like this dog is stuck. He's pretending that everything's fine. He is stuck. He's not fine. <laughs> but if I'm not rejoicing in everything, I'm pretending that Jesus Christ hasn't come for me. I'm pretending that he did not reconcile me, make peace for me with God. I'm pretending that he didn't rise from the dead for me. I'm pretending that he's not ruling over the universe if I'm not able to rejoice. I'm pretending that he's not secured all the promises of God on my behalf if I'm not rejoicing. I'm pretending that he's not going to come back and make all things new and turn all of my sorrow into joy. If I'm rejoicing, if I'm not rejoicing, I'm pretending that none of that is true. I'm pretending that he's not really good. I'm pretending that he's not really in control, that he really doesn't have my best interest in mind. I'm pretending that he doesn't really love me. I'm pretending that he has forsaken me, or I'm pretending that he's not forsaken me. You're not going to leave me alone. I'm pretending that he's not thinking of me all the time. I'm pretending that he's not really aware of what's going on. I've got a circumstance that's beyond his interest, beyond his grasp, beyond his abilities. At its core, my failure to rejoice is basically just unbelief. So I've got to choose. And I get to choose. I can choose to rejoice, always. So it's not, this is not to be some insensitive thing you've hit other people with when they have trials. It's to be a sensible response you and I make to ourselves in our trials. Jesus reigns. He loves you. So rejoice. If you are a Christian today, joy is your privilege. It is your right 
Grab on to it. So let me conclude with this. What are you anxious about? What are you anxious about? What keeps you up at night? What worry is the first thing you have to think about when you open your eyes in the morning? Paul would say, just stop. Stop it. Stop fixating on that. Stop turning those worries into nightmares. Just tell yourself, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to change direction. Circumstances still exist, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to choose to lay my burdens on God because he's mighty and he cares. I'm going to trust him with those. I'm going to think not so much about the circumstances. They're real. I get that. But about how God is awesome and how God is good. He's always been good. He's good now. He's going to be good in the future. I'm going to let him lead me to some rejoicing because I am in Christ and he is the ruler of all things. Yeah, I may shed some tears over loss and pain, but in Christ, my rejoicing can be louder than the cries of pain. And I will experience the supernatural peace of God that even I don't even grasp how it's possible. See, this is reality. This is how the universe is supposed to work for followers of Christ. Let me pray for us.